you've ever raised a toddler, well, let me invite you first, uh, John 20, that's where we'll be. We're continuing in the book of John today. That's where we've been throughout Lent. We'll be there again today. The verses will be on the screen. If you don't have uh, that with you this morning, you're welcome to follow along up there. But if you've ever raised a toddler, babysat a toddler, you're very aware that they have special skills. Uh, they, can, they can write on walls in permanent marker. They can cut other siblings, younger siblings' hair. But every once in a while you run across a toddler who has an extraordinary skill set, like Leo Belknap. Leo is a two-year-old who knows how to use a paper shredder. So one Sunday, his parents, Ben and Jackie Belknap, noticed an important envelope containing $1,060 was mysteriously missing. For the past year, the diehard University of Utah football fans had been saving money to pay back Ben's parents for season tickets. So they started tearing the house apart, searching for the cash. So Ben says, I'm digging through the trash. And Jackie hollers, I found it. It was in the shredder in a thousand tiny pieces. Immediately, they knew Leo was the culprit. He had been helping her shred junk mail and documents, and apparently he thought he was being helpful this time too. First, his mother wept, and then she laughed, and she said, as devastated and as sick as we were, this was one of those moments where you just have to laugh. But the article says, hope may not be lost for the couple. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing, it's a thing, um, offers a solution. In fact, the Bureau has an entire mutilated currency division, which is devoted to redeeming burned, rodent-chewed, or deteriorated money. It's a free service to the public. It handles approximately 30,000 claims per year, redeeming more than $30 million in mutilated cash. Ben Belknap contacted the Treasury Department and was told to send the remains of the money to Washington in Ziploc baggies. And in the meantime, they said that Leo will not be using the shredder anymore. <laughs> so I tell you that story just to, just to set you up to realize that if a government bureaucracy like the Bureau of Engraving and Printing offers hope for redemption, for burned, rodent-chewed, or deteriorated money, it's a free service to the public then this morning I want you to know that there is surely hope for you from our God, right? That God also has a division that offers us sure hope when our lives seem damaged beyond redemption. I suppose we could call it the redemption or the resurrection rather division. And what we wanna to do today is look at the resurrection account from John chapter 20, the most hopeful story ever told. And as, as we uh, open up to John 20, let me, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, have mercy on us now through your good word and your spirit. Bring hope to us. Right? Each one of us needs it right where we are. God, bring it to us through the story of the resurrection of your good son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if, I, if you've been to North Wake for a while, you know that when it comes time to preach about the resurrection, I've done this like 31 times, right? I have a fascination with what happens right after the resurrection. So for 40 days, Jesus did not ascend to heaven. He hung around and I don't know how else to say it, he stalked people, right? This is what he did. He sought out people 
who were greatly discouraged and, and had encounters with him. Not stalking in the creepy sense that comes to mind, but there were a number of Jesus sightings during this period and repeatedly Jesus intentionally pursues people, especially people who are struggling to believe in order to give them hope and strengthen their faith. So you could say that for 40 days, Jesus stays around simply to dispense hope. He sought out those struggling to believe, and, and everybody was struggling. Nobody was on the page with the resurrection at that point in time. And in the 10 or so resurrection appearances by Jesus, uh, we'll look at just a couple of them today. But I want you to know that before we look at this, that Jesus is not dead, he's alive, and he is still stalking people, right? Helping us believe. This room is full of stories of people whom Jesus has stalked in this loving, kind way and brought us to faith in his resurrection. So let's look at John's gospel, which we've been studying in recent weeks, uh, starting in chapter 20, the first verse. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay. And this is the first person's story we wanna think about together this morning. Mary Magdalene, this lady. Um, she's often thought of popularly as a woman with a past, which is true, but not that kind of past. That's a different Mary. There's a handful of Marys in the New Testament stories. Um, Mary Magdalene's past was not so much immoral as it was crazy, right? Luke describes her this way. It says that some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were with Jesus. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Right? That's Mary Magdalene's story. And just to clear things up a bit, Mary Magdalene never married Jesus in the Bible or in real life. That's just something Dan Brown made up to sell books like the Da Vinci Code, right? That's not her story. Right? But she was possessed by seven spirits. I, I can't imagine what that would be like to be possessed by seven demons. The glimpses we get from the New Testament are incredibly sorrowful. People living naked amongst the tombs kind of sorrowful life, right? But from that life, she had been set free by Jesus. And so she arrives early that Sunday morning at the tomb while it's still dark. She's the first one there. And you get a sense that She's there out of her devotion and genuine love for Jesus, right? And to her credit, this is pretty brave, right? Most of us are not particularly excited about cemeteries in the dark. And yet here she is, and she finds that stone rolled away. She literally runs back to the disciples to tell them that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Verse three, Peter went out with the other disciple and they're going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. So to describe this scene at the tomb in the dark of that early morning as confusing would probably be an understatement. This is, this is chaos, right? This is like the first runner's camp. People are running every which way. And I have to apologize to Rob. I know runner's camp is not chaos. It's a very well-ordered camp. So let me just make that disclaimer. No one seems to know what to make of it. Mary, Peter, they're totally befuddled. But John, he's likely the one that refers to himself here as the other disciple. He's the one who beat Peter in the foot race to the tomb, and he's the author of this biography of Jesus we're reading. At last, he makes his way into the tomb, and there he observes several really critical things. The linen head cloths were lying there folded up, like someone does when you're putting away something you're finished with, right? It's hardly the mark of grave robbers. They would not have left this expensive linen behind. This is what they would have robbed the tomb for. Professor Dale Bruner um, expresses what it is that John and all Christians believe um, when he says, I believe that Jesus really has been raised from the dead, that he really is Lord, that death really is defeated, that everything Jesus said is true, that this is the single most important and astonishing fact and event in world history. It's like John has been following a trail of breadcrumbs, the stone rolled away, the empty tomb, the linen wrappings, the headcloth folded up and laid separately. It's like Jesus left those clues behind just for John to find, just to help John, the other disciple, believe. But Mary here is still confused and distressed, right? Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not where they have laid him. And Mary, it seems, has also made the dash back to the tomb after the disciples got there, and she has lingered afterwards. But she, unlike John, has yet to put the pieces together. And amidst that great grief in the early morning darkness, she doesn't recognize the angels in white. Verse 14 Having said this, she turned around from the angels and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Again, Mary's devotion seems clear here. She just wants to honor her Lord by giving him a decent burial if she can just find the body, right? And Jesus said to her one word, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
and then she hangs on to him for dear life. Somehow, just saying her name made her come to her senses. Her grief was banished in an instant. Think what that must have been like. Again, let me let Professor Berner describe it. She turned around, it says. In the one or two seconds this took, I imagine the world shifting ever so slightly on its axis. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest human despair, in the agonizing presence of inconquerable death. A second after the beginning of this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human elation, in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. The rush that must have overcome this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She is the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. When she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the vincibility of death and so to the conquest of meaninglessness. And so now, Jesus has sought out Mary here at the tomb, stalked her in a sense, to give her just what she needed to believe. And it seems that what Mary needed was to hear Jesus say her name. It's kind of like Jesus himself had said earlier in the Gospel of John. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And Mary knew the voice of her Lord. You know, Jesus still does this. He still calls people out by name to follow him. There's a former NFL player, Derwin Gray, and he tells his story this way. It's a a wonderful story. He says, growing up on the west side of San Antonio, I believed in God, the God of football. The game was my ticket out of an early life saturated with violence, addiction, abuse, and chaos. I was raised by my grandmother, because my parents were only teenagers when I was born. They were children bringing a child into the world. As much as they wanted to care for me, the hurt and brokenness in their lives prevented them. Granny was a Jehovah's Witness, so that was the religion I knew, and after a while, even that went away. He says, we were not poor, we were po. We couldn't afford the other O and R. We didn't eat meals together, we didn't pray together. There were good times, like when we go fishing or when my grandfather would come after come home after work in the evenings. But by the time I was 13, however, I looked at my environment and told my grandmother, I'm gonna do something with my life. Football, he says, functioned as my savior. It gave me love. If I played well, I was loved by fans. It gave me an identity. I was Derwin, the football player. It gave me significance. I was somebody because I was a great player. And football gave me a mission. My mission was this, Derwin, you can go to college and make something of your life. My senior year, I accepted a football scholarship to Brigham Young University. He says, so you have a black kid from a lower socioeconomic, multi-ethnic context with a Jehovah's Witness religious background whose God is football attending a Mormon university. (laughs) He says, at BYU, my God had come through for me. I had an outstanding career and was later named to BYU football's all-time dream team. Plus, I was loved at the school. I had the girl of my dreams. I was making something out of my life. On April 25th, 1993, I was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts to strong safety. I had made it. He said, then 
I met the naked preacher, a linebacker for the Colts in 1993. It was impossible not to notice a linebacker who would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, pick up his Bible, and ask those of us in the locker room, do you know Jesus? I would think, do you know you are half naked? said, I asked the veterans on the team about this guy, and they said, don't pay attention to him, that's the naked preacher. And so at this point in my life, I did not want anything to do with Jesus or a half-naked man talking about him, so I tried to avoid him. One day after practice, I was sitting at my locker, and I saw the naked preacher, whose real name is Steve Grant, walking toward me. Rookie D. Gray, do you know Jesus, he asked. I pretended not to hear him and turned my back. He repeated the question, but this time he was at my locker. Even though I was not a churchgoer or involved in any religious group, I gave what I thought was a very religious answer. I'm a good person. Steve explained that according to the Bible, only God is good. He is the standard of goodness and righteousness. Everyone else has sinned and falls short. This, Derwin says, disturbed me. I said, naked man, you are telling me that my moral comparison is to God and not to other people? And he said, yes. I said, God is perfect. What can I do to be perfect? And he answered, nothing. I said, I'm in big trouble. He said, rookie D. Gray, now you are starting to get it. You can't do anything to reach a perfect God, but Jesus has done everything for the perfect God to come down and reach you. I sat in silence. I needed time to think through what he was saying and what I was experiencing in my heart. He says, over the next five years, I watched Steve live out the gospel, the good news about Jesus. When my teammates needed advice, they were at the naked preacher's locker. Steve was involved in the greater Indianapolis community. He displayed Jesus in the way he loved his wife and children. He preached through his words and his actions. As the naked preacher preached, God's love crushed me. I had achieved the American dream only to realize it could not empower me to love my wife or forgive my father. My fame and money could not erase my sin, shame, guilt, fear, and insecurity. Then, he says, between 1995 and 97, I started getting injured on the field, and when a professional athlete's body starts to fail, he knows his career is coming to an end. My body was how I made my living. As I began to give out, I was stripped of everything I thought gave me meaning. I was left with nothing, even though I seemingly had everything. On August 2nd, 1997, after lunch at training camp for my fifth season with the Indianapolis Colts, I walked to my dorm room at Anderson University in central Indiana, and as I walked, I sensed an emptiness and brokenness, brokenness like I had never experienced. When I got to my room, I immediately picked up the phone and called my wife. I want to be more committed to you, I said, and I want to be committed to Jesus. And at that moment, I realized that God did love me not because I could run fast or jump higher because I was good or even for what I could give him. I realized that as Jesus hung on the cross, I was forever loved and accepted by God. I realized my sin had been erased by Jesus' blood. It was as if I could see for the first time. That day, he says, I got infected with a virus called grace and the symptoms are now full-blown. You know, perhaps today, Jesus is stalking you in love just like he was Derwin. Maybe today he's calling your name. He's offering you hope and granting you faith today to believe in him. Jesus, we're seeing it 
after he rises from the dead. He searches out the broken and he pursues those whose dreams have disappointed them. In their greatest sorrow and loss, he pursues them and he finds them and he grants them faith and he still does it today. You know, in the verses that follow, Mary tells the disciples about her encounter. And I want you to see that she's transformed by this encounter with Jesus. From the darkest of fears to unspeakable joy, from confusion to a sure testimony about what has happened. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. But you get a sense that they still thought she was crazy. Look how Luke tells it. These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So later that same day, Jesus makes an appointment with his disciples when they are together, and he shows them his hands and his side. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side um, and said, peace be with you. And when he had said that, oh, excuse me, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The disciples were glad. I think that's one of the great understatements of all time, right? I mean, I, I was glad when I saw my son come in this morning, right? I think when they saw, saw Jesus, they were about to explode with Cresswellian joy, right? Jesus commissions these disciples. He says to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But one of the disciples is mysteriously and inexplicably absent. His name is Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas, right? His is another story that we want to listen in on this morning. It starts in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So <clears throat> the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is a diehard skeptic here, right? He lays down terms. If they aren't met, he is adamant that he will not believe. Now, now keep in mind that he's making those kinds of statements in the face of the testimony of all of the other 10 disciples, right? And of Mary and the other women who traveled to the tomb and then reported the resurrection to the disciples. The two men who were on the road to Emmaus who had extended conversation and ate a meal with the resurrected Jesus and reported that to the disciples. By this time, Jesus had also appeared to Peter personally. Plus, there were his memories that Jesus really did raise a guy from, named Lazarus from the dead. All these voices are testifying to Thomas, telling him about stones rolled away and head claws folded and tombs emptied of their occupants and wounds in sides and hands, telling him that they had seen it with their own eyes and yet he is resolute in his unbelief. 
He requires first-hand experience to verify this ridiculously unbelievable nonsense about raising from the dead. Jesus, unlike I would have been, Jesus is patient with Thomas. And in love, once again, Jesus makes an intentional appointment with doubting Thomas. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, the next Sunday, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Right? Jesus is after Thomas. It's as though this appearance with the disciples is just for him. It wasn't enough that 10 of the disciples believed Jesus wanted all 11 of the apostles to see and believe. He wanted Thomas to have faith instead of doubt and hope instead of despair. So Jesus offers to Thomas exactly what he needed to believe. And it's interesting, he got quotes Thomas, right? Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve Thomas, but believe. Jesus wants Thomas free from the hopelessness of unbelief. So he grants him what Thomas needs. And in Thomas' case, it's just what he asked for. It almost seems like Thomas here is making some kind of a deal with God, and those are always tricky. But in reality, he didn't even make a deal with God. He just protested to the other disciples. But it's like Jesus overheard, even though he wasn't in the room. Jesus has this godlike knowledge of people's thoughts and mind, probably because he's God. Right? There are occasions in people's lives when they're just mindful that he's listening in. Like the story Pastor Steve Shogren tells about a guy named Joe Delaney and his eight-year-old son, Jared. They're playing catch in their backyard. It's a true story. Um, Jared, the eight-year-old, asks his dad while they're playing ball out of the blue. He says, Dad, is there a God? Joe says that he only went to church a few times when he was a kid, and he really has no idea. So Jared runs into the house. I'll be right back, he yells. Moments later, he comes back with a helium balloon from the circus, a pen, and an index card. He says to his dad, I'm going to send God an airmail message. And he writes out, Dear God, if you are real and you are there, send people who know you to dad and me. Joe says in his mind, God, I hope you're watching. And then they watch this balloon and the message sail off into the sky. Two days later, Joe and Jared pulled into a car wash sponsored by Shogren's church. And when Joe asked how much, Shogren answered, it's free, no strings attached. We just want to show God's love in a practical way. And Joe says, are you guys Christians? Like the kind of Christians who believe in God? <laughs> and Shogren says, yes, we're that kind of Christian. Right? And from that encounter at a car wash and maybe a helium balloon in the faith of an eight-year-old, Joe Delaney would come to know the God he did not know existed. And so would Thomas. See, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, that's not profanity. That's theology. Thomas' simple confession of faith tells us 
the shape our faith must take. Jesus is Lord. Think master, ruler, king. Jesus is God. Think God, right? Those two things go together. Thomas is using language that's about God. Thomas is declaring Jesus to be no less than his God. For a Jew like Thomas, that meant he was declaring Jesus to be the one and only true monotheistic God. And twice Thomas says, he's, my, he's mine, he's my Lord, he's my God. This is not some vague cosmic reality. This is Thomas now personally held belief and trust. He's now the disciple formerly known as Doubting Thomas, right? Because tradition tells us Thomas was changed by this. And the tradition says that he traveled as far as India to a state called Kerala in the south. I've been there. And he went there to share the message of Jesus with people, um, preached to all classes of people, and had like 17,000 converts, including members of the four principal castes uh, amongst Hindu society there. The tradition tells us also that he was martyred there for his faith. But don't, don't lose track amidst all that God did according to tradition through Thomas. Don't miss the wonder of the one. There's an ancient church father 1,600 years ago. He wrote about this and he said, when you see the disciple refusing to believe, that's Thomas, reflect on the mercy shown by the Lord, how even for the sake of one soul, he showed himself with his wounds and came so that he might save even the one soul despite the fact that this one was more crass than the others. You know, Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. It's what he's doing then, it's what he's doing now. He's stalking doubters one by one, often the ones most undeserving who resolutely refuse to believe those in greatest need of faith, and he helps them believe. And this morning, know that Jesus, Jesus is stalking you. That's why you're here. See, faith is not just for people who were there back then. Not just for the eyewitnesses. Um, Jesus talks about in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus is clear. There are going to be people who will not see. They will only hear, yet they will believe. Hearing will be enough for them. And Jesus is saying this morning, it can be enough for you, right? To, To hear these accounts Jesus is looking forward through time and he's promising to bless all who believe on the basis of these true stories. He's promising to bless you if you will believe. And John picks up on Jesus' words as he wraps up our our story this morning and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There was a a Christian leader a number, a long time ago, actually, his name is William Temple, and he wrote this about our passage. He said, the beloved disciple believes when he sees the grave claws. Mary Magdalene, when she hears a well-known voice pronounce her name. The ten apostles, when they see the Lord's wounds. St. Thomas, when he sees those same wounds, is invited to handle them. But better than all of these is a faith that needs no such support 
from experiences of the senses. Let me lead us in prayer for you to have that kind of faith right now. Would you bow with me? Jesus, I'm, I'm glad to confess once again that I do believe I do believe that on that Friday afternoon you died on that cross, not because of your sins, but for people like mine. And I do believe on the third day that tomb was empty in that morning because you rose from the dead to make, to kind of underscore it all and and reassure us that it's all true. And so this morning I pray for those Uh, here and listening in, Lord, that you would grant them faith to say, I believe. I believe. That they believe that Jesus did die on the cross and that payment for their sins is found there. That he did rise on the third day to give them hope, a sure hope of everlasting life in him. So Lord, hear their prayers now in this quiet moment as they just say to you, Jesus, I believe.